who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today, from divorce to call-out culture to masculinity to girls' confidence. Season two of Thread the Needle finds the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to IGN Unfiltered, our monthly interview show where we sit down with the very best and brightest of the video game industry. My name is Ryan McCaffrey. This man you probably know, Cliff Blazinski. God, he just turned that on Seacrest style. He's like, what's up? I'm like, I gotta gotta wake up now. Jesus Christ. Yeah, you can bring bring their A-game here, Cliff. More caffeine or something. How you doing, man? It's good to see you. (laughs) I'm I'm great. It's good to see you. I've known you now for over a decade. Uh, You've been making games for much longer than that. I took a little time off, but yeah. Uh, Yeah, and we'll get to that, believe me. But I want to kind of just start with sort of general question. You know you've done well for yourself when the top two Google autocomplete results for you Uh are... Cliff Blazinski wife and Cliff Blazinski net worth. Oh, I thought it was going to be like <laughs> talker, no, late no, night drunk tweets. So just you know, general off the top, like how, how do you get to the point you are? You, you started making games when you were a kid, which we'll talk more about. And now here you are. You've, you've, you're running your own startup, new successful game studio. You've engineered uh, multiple huge IPs. Is it luck? Is it hard work? What What is the Cliff Blazinski well, I mean, secret? The current state, and you, if you get me to talk about myself in third person, I'll stab you. The current state of where <laughs> I am for is, good TV. Is, is, is kind of like starting over in a lot of ways. Because yeah. what you see now, and we alluded to this in the hallway, talking about the generation of MOBAs, the generation of Minecraft, and the Twitch and YouTube generation, yeah. which is the new MTV. This whole generation of, you know... Eight to whatever demographic we want to label right now yeah. doesn't know who I am, nor do they give a right. At the end of the day, so I'm reintroducing you know myself and the kind of studio that I have, the kind of game that I'm making uh, to that audience, right? Yeah. Um, you know, your 28 to 50 year olds who, who grew up, you know, playing the, the things that I've made, you know, they know who I am. So for me, as much as I do come across as, as brash and cocky sometimes, you know, I really do have this kind of deep sense of humility and like, okay, like. You know, I hope people will try the new game and really give it an honest to God go and see that you know I make this stuff I want to play and you know we're at the studio laughing and playing it every day yeah. and you know our, our publishers getting their ducks in a row in regards to marketing the hell out of it and it's coming out sooner than you think. It's been yeah, the game is Lawbreakers. It's a brand new game. We'll talk more about that yeah. too. The studio is Boss Key. You yep. took some time off. We 
We'll go. We'll get to all that first. I want to back up. You were in the first issue Nintendo of Power. Nintendo Power magazine. Yep. What I want to know about that is you've talked about that before, but how did you find out? Like, because they don't they don't contact you ahead no, of time, right? You so just get was, the magazine. This, right? Remember, this was like in the eighties, right? This is forty one. It was eighty nine, I think. It was uh, eighty nine? Somewhere but right I was around. actually Nintendo had this this fanzine that they did before called Nintendo Fun Club, which I still I remember that once. too. I think I was in that. Zelda, um, uh, t- uh, Duck Hunt, uh, Punch Out, all of those were in that, and. Uh, my friend Ralph Barbagallo, who's a VR developer now, by the way, he was actually at Ion Storm as well. He's my hmm. childhood uh, best friend. He and I used to like have sleepovers and play Genesis games and Nintendo games together. Yeah. And we sent in literally a Polaroid of the high score to Nintendo, and like this is when the Fun Club was around. I don't yeah, even know and how. And you I, would literally mail it. Yeah, you literally mail the the Meat Space envelope. Yep. Right. You couldn't just send. A- <laughs> a selfie or anything, and it was one of those things that, like, you know, when the issue showed up, and you know, my my name was at the top of the list, not because I was cool, but because of alphabetical order. And of course, my name was misspelled, which is a series of the rest of my life dealing with that. Which McCaffrey, is I can relate. So yeah, believe me. Yeah, yeah like, like Anne McCaffrey. What? Like, <laughs> and so you know, then I, I sent in a few more, and then suddenly the first issue of Nintendo Power came, which I waited for with bated breath for months, like checking the mailbox every freaking day that hot New England yep. summer. And when it finally showed up, and you know, same thing with the Zelda manual. I could smell it, and just the you know the, the Mario on the cover, and that kind of clay look. The to Mario it all. Two, yeah. yeah, Mario Two, which was really not really Mario Two, which was really Dream World out of Japan because yeah. Mario Two is deemed too difficult, too hard for, for yeah. Western audiences, which is. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I again, I, I love, I talk crap about Nintendo because I've always cared about Nintendo, yeah. and so games, you know, are they're in my blood, they're in my DNA, and I just ever since I saw that you can manipulate an image on a TV or monitor, I was hooked from that point out. So that's so you re, you realized that you wanted to make games pretty early. Then. I knew it's the, the age of six when I saw Space Invaders, and it's like that that a, a brief period where I wanted to act, and then a brief period where I wanted to be a herpetologist, which is of course the study of reptiles and amphibians because I <laughs> caught snakes and stuff. I was a weird kid, and, uh, and but then you know ultimately coming back to games, and you know my family was fortunate enough being from a middle class family to afford an Apple IIc mm-hmm. uh, at the time, and then it was originally from my older brother Tyler, uh, you know, founder of Vox Media. Yep. And uh, he ignored it because he was at an age where he was too busy chasing all the girls in the neighborhood. And I was just like, okay. And I started programming <laughs> and just ma- learning basic because I wasn't smart enough to learn Pascal or C++ or anything like that. Um, finding adventure construction sets and things like that. And you know, made a game that was a little adventure game I brought to my freshman year of high school teacher and sold it to him in a plastic bag for 20 bucks. Yeah, the game was called uh, The Palace of Deceit. This is even before that. Oh, even before yeah, that. Was, all this, right. is, this is when Emmanuel Noriega was being hunted down. Uh, by our government at the time. I can't remember who the president was at the time, but it was wearing Panama. It would have been uh, probably the first Bush, right? It was first Bush, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I knew very little of the news. This was before the internet. I had to kind of just like guess what Panama would be like and how you could find Manuel Noriega. I was a weird kid. I read (laughs) Time magazine. And uh, and then eventually got on to doing uh, Palace of Deceit and the the adventure game. So uh, once I wound up with my uh, IBM 386SX. Well, tell me about that game. So, yeah, you, The Palace of Deceit, Dragon's Plight. I had to, I, I had to cheat on my notes for that one. But uh, you were 17 yeah, when you made that yeah. game. Uh, what did you learn from that experience? I learned a lot about usability. Um, well, first off, okay, to back up a little bit, it's, for me it was about IP creation. And, you know, I loved, I've always loved dragons, you know, even way before Game of Thrones and all that. Yeah. I just, you know, I just thought dragons were really, really cool creatures, and the mythology of it was very fascinating. Um, and so the idea is you were a young dragon who was imprisoned by this evil wizard, and you had to escape this castle and meet all these wacky characters that I drew all the cheesy artwork for and my goofy little writing. But it was kind of the kind of deja vu, uninvited uh, snatcher type of adventure game. And that was you know sold on three and a half inch floppies that literally selling copies out of my mom's old house oh, yeah. in Southern California. And 
you know, they I, I'd put out a demo version and people would register it with shareware mm -hmm. and I'd get a check in the mail and I'd you know, the first few Locks orders. It up, right? The first few orders, what I did was I, you know, so I didn't want to write 001, right? So I made, I put, put a bunch of numbers in front to make it look like it's some sort of magical serial number and then did 001. <laughs> so to tackle like a, some sort of big company. And then would just manually mail it out to people. I, I usually once a week, I go down to the post office and, you know, it's like a rapper selling his mixtape out of his trunk or something, but the white suburban version of that, I guess. Now, do you think if we get into the psychology of that, it's about a, it's about a dragon? It, who's imprisoned? It, are you the dragon? Were you trying to break free a, from your suburban confines? I was a lonely, pimply-faced kid. Of course, I was. Right? Mm. We all were. But the one thing, I still get pimples at forty-one. Uh, the one saving grace, for, besides you know my nerddom, was uh, you know getting involved in drama. You know, and that's one of the things. You know, we were talking about. You have a daughter, my brother, yeah. my nieces and nephews. I'm just like, even if they don't become an actor, actress, model, anything like that, just to put them together with a band of what are usually a bunch of awesome misfits in drama club, and to work towards a goal. Uh, and to figure out how to almost be a family in a limited time period then perform in front of a, a crowd just for confidence alone, yeah. it's awesome. And so that's why I suggest to everybody, you know, sports are great too, activities are great, but for me... Support the liberal, liberal arts. Yeah, drama, man. That's where it's at. So anyway, and then, uh, yeah, so I made that game and then uh, moved on to my next once. Uh, this was the shareware era of CompuServe and, and BBSs and whatnot. And this is when Epic Games came rip-roaring on well, the scene. Well, do you still... I, really, I want to ask you real quick. Do you still have a copy of Dragon's Deceit? Yeah, oh, Dragon's... Uh, mm -hmm. No, it's Dragon's Plight. Sorry, my... Uh, the, dra the Dragon. Yeah. wasn't one in trouble. He wasn't. <laughs> it made it sound like some sort of like weird I, Japanese. I apologize. The Panzer Dragoon type game. <laughs> Dragons and Deceit. Um, that's so, a good title, though. You should run with that. That's actually not bad. And so it's a dragon that can go stealth, and he's a, in a mob, and he shoots fire out his butt. <laughs> um, so yeah, I have it framed in my home. I have the, the, the original three and a half inch floppies, and I had fine, nice. you know, a bunch of the artwork that I had printed and framed, and then a lot of my development log notes, which are like all in a frame. I've managed to like, I somehow held, kept on a bunch of my old. From those that yeah. time period, so some of it I hadn't looked at in 15 years, and like a couple weekends ago, Lauren and I just chilled out, had nursed champagne, and went through all my old photos, all and just like I just crazy weird time periods throughout my life. Do we know just, where where disc 001 is? Uh, no, we don't. No, it never no. turned up. Huh? For Nobody years later, though, like I had already moved on, and my mom was still occasionally getting a check in the mail, and had to like send it back. <laughs> you know, and she, I think that was the time when my mom's like, this, there could really be something to this whole video game thing, and because I'd read the stories about you know how Apple started in the garage and, oh, yeah? and how all these tech companies you know even Tim you know Tim Sweeney at Epic he started in his parents basement you yeah. know and you know capitalism you know can be a very bad thing but sometimes there's certain aspects of a free market that can be good that can allow someone to kind of make a product and let see if it rises or or, or sinks right so you're from Massachusetts but you went to high school in Southern California as you mentioned and you sent a copy of uh Dragon's Plight to mm -hmm. Tim Sweeney yeah, at Epic. Yeah, this was right around Jill of the Jungle time period. Right. Right. Why, why Epic? Why did you, you send it to them? I, I like their attitude. You know, and, and this was also the time when most of the publishers, your LucasArts, your, your EAs. Sierra. Your, yeah, Sierra. Yeah. Um, they, they were a walled garden. And you couldn't send anything to them because legal reasons. Right. You know, still to this day, if somebody emails me a game idea, I can't read it and I don't. And I'm, I'm, yeah. like, I'm like, dude, I can't because if I happen to make Some something somewhat thing. similar, um, you're going to come after me and try and sue me. And, like, you know, I'd rather focus time on making a video game rather than dealing with lawyers. Uh, and so it's one of those things that, uh, you know, Epic was available and wanted to almost be a publisher at that, to at that time. You know, and, you know, basically deal with, like, you know, okay, well, do make sure your game gets on all these servers. All these BBSs, and we'll kind of you know help make physical copies that are mailed out in a manual and all that, and be your, essentially your publisher at the time. And you know, I sent it to the, um, Tim and Mark, and I was expecting you know Tim Sweeney to call me, you know the the brains behind the operation. Instead, he sent this this boisterous lot 
importantly, Mark Rain, to call me. <laughs> I say it because Mark, you know him very well. Mark's Mark's who's at who's at both of my weddings, um, and he's a dear friend, and he knows. He's a and he knows it, and he wears it on his sleeve, and he's good at it. And it, it helps him be very, very good at his job and being pushy and consistent, persistent, and insistent. And that's why he's Mark. And uh, he, Mark called me, a very young me. Uh, you know, I was like 18, 19 at the time. Yeah. And you have to understand emotionally, I was still very much like 14. Um, I'm like 41, but I'm going on like 25 right now emotionally. And uh, he's like, hey, okay, so we're going to take your game. We're going to redo all the graphics and like higher resolution. Then we're going to hire blah, blah, blah. I'm just sitting there going like, who the hell is this guy? I wanted to talk to the, the nerdy dude. Like, right. what the hell? And uh, But that's kind of the pairing that you've seen throughout tech of like the kind of brainy genius. The Wozniak and, and the job. Yeah, right? the Carmack and Ramiro, you know. And for me, that's, you know, me being the creative, having Ariane, who's, you know, running Boss Key, who's the one who came from a code background that I later did Jazz Jackrabbit with. So you, those kinds of pairings generally tend to yield uh, a good thing, right? You complement each other. Exactly, exactly. You know, can call each other out in each other's and, and you know, and, and figure out what you know what area a person isn't the best in, and the other person fills in the gap, and it winds up being some master blaster type. So, uh, Tim Sweeney hires you. Uh, it's technically a contractor. A contractor, okay. yeah. So, but you, you're hired to work at a video game company at this point. So, what, what's your reaction at that point? Well, I mean, I was at the point where I was making a little bit of money, but I wasn't making enough to move out of my mother's house, yeah. or get my own first car, or. You know, get an apartment where I could actually run air conditioning because my mother wouldn't run air conditioning in inland Southern California. It's weird, <laughs> and um, and so I was really working away on my next game because well, so first I made Palace of Deceit that made a little bit of money, did fairly well. Then I did made this really bizarre game called Dare to Dream, into which you were like a ten year old. Another adventure game. Yeah, another adventure game, but it was this really esoteric thing where you're like a ten year old boy dealing with this 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 evil character that was a metaphor for my. Uh, Catholic guilt being raised. It was really, really weird. Right. Um, and I was going through a very weird hormonal phase. Um, but advent- adventure games, you got to remember, were the were the the, the it genre. At that yeah, point I think time. it was in, in, in 90s, hindsight, right? man, it might have been that I was on that that anti acne drug Accutane at the time, which could really you and affect, me too. Yeah, yeah. We can, <laughs> I still used to use dries you out. Yeah, yeah, it's unreal. Especially in the West Coast, I'm just like <laughs> still to this day. Can I, can I get some Jergens up in here? It's getting a little, 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 little ashy. I don't sweat um, anymore. It's strange. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. Not, my feet get really sweaty though. So okay, this is we're getting super nerd. <laughs> Off topic. And um, but and I think that's why that game went up so weird. But the thing was, is the game was meant to be kind of a super esoteric puzzle experience, kind of like uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the whole idea of getting the babblefish and I kind of took that idea and ran with it yeah. which meant nobody could get through the damn game because it made absolutely no sense like you had to find you know, Vaseline to lubricate a sewer grate to slide down and pick the lock with the, the, the tail of a fish it was like what and it was just really Ron I, Gilbert would approve like, I mean his games made sense like <laughs> you could play through them this game was just dumb I don't know what I was thinking I made a whole trilogy of it I did all the graphics worked my butt off it came out and just face planted and I was like and then Tim sends me this little uh, demo that looked like the old game Turrican, the Amiga game, where it was kind of this, you know, 60 frames a second type, super scr- smooth scrolling on PC, which no one had seen at that point. Right. We'd had up to that point, like, just like Commander Keen and whatnot by id. And uh, this was before the, the era of Doom, of course. Yeah. And he's, it came with this little, little level editor, and I had, you know, uh, deluxe paint on my computer at the time. So I could actually do you know different tiles for it, and I started putting things together and started making characters. And he had a sprite editor and everything that I could make animation and basic you know scripting logic. And so you're I, learning it all yourself. So you're just self teaching yourself all yeah, this stuff. Yeah, I wasn't getting any dates, so I figured, what the heck, right? Um, it was basically school work, school work, and uh, I basically you know at that point I was graduating high school. And I had to I had to go to college. This is the start of the generation. Oh, yeah. of, you want to flip burgers for the rest of your life? Everybody yeah. has to go to college and get a 
degree in archaeology or something, right? And um, and not get hired. And so I was applying for computer science at Cal Poly Pomona at the time. Um, and I didn't have a car. I was a weird kid. I didn't like it. In California, like, too. That's Well, tough. my brother was going to the same school. So I just hitch a ride to him in the morning and then go back. Because he and I have always been super close. Yeah. And I don't know why. Just the dream of having a car didn't appeal to me. I couldn't afford it at the time. So I'm like, I, I, why even bother? And um, so then, you know, I was telecommuting and basically staying up all night working on jazz and popping caffeine pills during the day to stay awake during my classes and going to play like Mortal Kombat at the arcade and eating frozen yogurt, sustaining myself on frozen yogurt with very little money. And then, uh, you know, I, I really, I hated the idea of going to college at the time. I really did not like it. Um, you know, it wasn't even the real kind of college, American college experience where the first year everyone just drinks and gets high yeah, yeah. and has sex. No, this was like just telecommute there, come home, work in your game. And um, I wanted to just school get, was a job. Effectively, uh, you, had, you had two jobs. It really was, and so you know, it's really easy to be like, "Oh, you should work two jobs, etc." Like, well, no, I just I wanted to move out of my mother's house because she wasn't running the American conditioning. <laughs> and then eventually, I had a girlfriend at the time, and so I wanted a place to hang out with her in private. And so you know, I, I completed jazz, and jazz hit the market, and this was about the six point six month point in college, and uh, I got my first check from Tim Sweeney from jazz being this kind of mega success. And I looked at that, and I was just like. College, like, <laughs> you guys. I'm not going back, and so, luckily I didn't have any student loans. It's after that, then you then you move out. Yeah, Epic, right? right. What and well, so I hadn't moved to 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 work with Epic yet. I basically during Jazz Jackrabbit, everybody was doing this kind of telecommute thing where we'd submit builds online back yeah. and forth, and then there was which has now come around. There are a lot of teams doing full that circle, now. yeah, virtual office, and then what we wound up doing one summer. This was the summer of the Lion King, by mind you, because I remember listening to that soundtrack on my CD portable CD Elton player. John baby. action, yeah. Nah, can you feel the love tonight? Oh yeah, and uh, <laughs> we were in one apartment where One Must Fall was getting completed by Rob Elam. I was uh, completing jazz with Ariane, and James Smalls was doing the very, very first early prototype of what would later become Unreal. Unreal. Yeah. It was a, ca- a game where you're a mech in a cave, which, if you really think about it, is a really bad idea. Because mechs, by nature, are slow and moving. You're going to put them in a dark, enclosed underground. Ah. But that was, he had this voxel engine that was, uh, could do like the ceiling. It started as like a magic carpet-type game. Mm-hmm. And then that was the summer again. We shipped jazz, and I got my first check for five grand, which I didn't know later I had to pay my own taxes on. I Whoops. found that out the hard way. Then I went to the mall, and I tried to buy a bunch of stuff. And I was only able to spend like 600 bucks of it, just buying random <laughs> just just to do it. And, uh, you know, Stephen King books and Bugs Bunny shirts and that was weird. Mall cannot yeah. contain your wealth. And then I got my 91 Saturn, which was my first car, which was not a bad car. So, but at some point, you soon after, you do move out. You, you leave home, you go out to, first apartment. To oh, North and eventually, so eventually what happens is Epic says, you know, we, we, we don't want to be in Maryland because Maryland kind of sucks. No offense to Maryland. Um, let's go someplace warmer in the south that's a little bit cheaper. And they wind up in Raleigh before yep. Raleigh was cool because Steve Polge. One of the main folks over AI at Epic. AI programmer, yeah. AI programmer, you know, came from a networking background where he made the first AI Reaper bot for Quake back That's in right. the day. And Epic he, hired him. He said, like, you know, let's, why not try Raleigh? And I show up in Raleigh to visit. I'm like, well, there's a Burger King in a mall, so I'm happy. <laughs> and uh, then Epic just kind of picked a carry, which was kind of, you know, close enough to Raleigh itself because yeah. downtown Raleigh was terrible. You're in the triangle time. there. Yeah, exactly. And um, and then we just started working on all our stuff at that point, you know. So how, what does your mom what, what do you, how are your parents reacting to when you, f- you, you move across the country to make video games Well, for so my dad, God bless him, um, he actually just died one day when I was 15. He had, you know, he had smoked most of his life, you know. He only started running the last few years of his life and kind of trying to take care of himself. And uh, one day he's on the golf course and just kaput. And it was one of those things that, you know, was kind of heartbreaking at the time, being 15 years old. Oh, I and, can't uh, imagine. 
And, you know, my mom, this was when we were in New England at the time, back in, outside of Boston, and my mom had a, a half-sister in, in Southern California, and then she suggested we move to Southern California, and then eventually Epic moved me, of course, to North Carolina. Right. But my mom was, you know, in a process of, you know, this is as everything was first gestating, of kind of, you know, falling back in love with someone new she met in California and doing her own thing to the point where, you know, I could do my own thing. Yeah. And so she was so busy, you know, love is a many splendid thing with her, her new husband. And I'm like, all right, well, you guys are just on dates and stuff. I'm just going to make my games. And uh, so she just kind of let me do my thing, you know. And so it was one of those things that, uh, you know, I, you know, I, you know I, that moment years ago, like with my dad passing, where you're just, you know, really accepting, you know, and he's gone. And having that realization that, you know, he'd probably be pretty proud. Which is I was going to say, of, yeah, he never got to see your your big success. No, was, man, but it's also, that. you know, it's one of those things that, you know, he's, he, was a, he was a great man who raised, you know, five wonderful boys. And, you know, they didn't know when to stop. I think they, were, they kept gunning for a girl, and it just every time, up oh, another boy, oh, another boy, another boy. <laughs> and then it, it's just, you know, my, the first of the family, as always the case, is the one where, you know, they ride his ass the hardest. you got to go to West Point and, and get your degree and, and play football and everything. By the time they get to me, they're like, uh, he's lighting fires in the woods. I don't care anymore. And so that, it was that freedom that allowed me to pursue the whole game thing, which, you know, thankfully I wanted to make games. And also make money doing it, by the way. That's yeah. one of the big things about this business. You know, everyone, it, it, they assume it's a dirty thing if you want to, like, you know, eat and pay your bills and stuff. And it's like, no, like, we're making commercial art in an industry. You know, you, you make something that's personal, that's great, but also you need it's to keep the lights on. It is its own version of it, man. So, so uh, I guess I, I was going to wait till the Gears of War part, but I got it. So is... Is the Adam Phoenix story arc, uh, is, is that related yeah, so, to your dad? Yeah, so Lee Perry, uh, Rod Ferguson, and I all lost our fathers at an early age. So the whole Adam Phoenix arc, you know, was based on, you know, I used to have, and I realize we're talking about the, the, the plot of daddy issues in a bro chainsaw shooter with lizard men here. I understand that. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that was my, my angle of trying to make the game personal in regards well, to... But that's what's cool about Gears of War to me, is it, it, it's, it is this uh, sort of seemingly superficial thing on the surface, but it turns out there is substance and I mean, meaning to it, and, and that's it, why people, people like, still care about they it. They like to easily dismiss that kind of stuff. You know, it's just a stupid bro shooter, it's brown, and blah, blah, blah. but it's like, you know, apart from the game mechanics, you know, we kind of created kind of a fun, cool, interesting world, you know, with characters you ultimately could quote and care about. Yeah. You know, there's, there's so many games of that generation that, you know, you, you can't quote it, you don't remember any of the lines, but you remember the stuff Dom and, you know, so and Coltrane's woos and bears, yeah. complain, bears complaining and all that. And, um, but anyway, just to backpedal before we get to Gears, so then basically Epic, um, even before we moved to Raleigh, now I'm getting my timeline mixed up, Epic basically had me when I was living in my apartment in Southern California, telecommute to uh, Kitchener-Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, where Digital Extremes was. Ah, yes, yeah, another they were associate co- of theirs. Co-developers yeah. of Unreal, and now Warframe, and having much success with that. So Warframe would become Gears. Uh, well, Oh, hang on. Right. Uh, no, Warframe was its own thing. That, that's another whole timeline. We're getting our timeline. Uh, my bad. Stuff. So basically, we made... The, we, <laughs> I'll let you tell the story. We, uh, telecommuted for over a year. Yeah. Uh, physically commuted. And this is when I started flying all the damn time. Shipped the first Unreal. It did okay. I think we got over by a publisher at that time. Then Epic goes, let's move to North Carolina. And we were going to make an add-on pack at that point. It was going to be called the Bot Pack. It was going to be a multiplayer like add-on with just AI... That you could that you could just play in Unreal and like I was pissed off at the time because I wanted to make a, a, a game at that point called Overfiend, which was basically Doom and kind of an anime city where you're hmm. fighting demons. Uh, it was kind of a big weeble woo back then. Um, and so then basically, uh, you know, we're in North Carolina and Mark Rain sits us all, sits us all down one time. He's like, "Look, this this whole expansion could be its own game. 
we should call it like Unreal Tournament or something like that, and that, that wound up sticking. And then this was the era where you know Quake was becoming big, and Carmack launched Quake World, which was his great whole the online, online component, yeah. exactly, which was wonderful. And you know, and I, I wanted to be it at the time. Like I wanted to be John Romero. Like Romero was my hero. And um, then you know, Unreal Tournament came out, and that was where like you know about '98 we really started getting that kind of good traction in, in North Carolina in the studio. And that's where I want to back you up a second to yeah. Unreal because Unreal is a game at you know, at that point in time. You just alluded to it. It was the king. Like they were. They were it. They, that was they were the unprecedented. I used to listen. Uh, you know, being able to cast Ice T later, and this is going to be really goofy again. <laughs> so bear with me. Um, it's one of those things. He had this one line from New Jack City, where he said, "I had nothing and I wanted it. You had everything and you flaunted it." And he used to sing that lyric, thinking about the photos of like Carmack's Ferrari and Ramirez's Ferrari, and Ramirez posting photos of his mostly marble mansion from the success of Wolf and Doom and whatnot. Yeah. And I was like, "Yeah, I want to. I want to be that. I'll show you, John Romero." Um, and then uh, that was part of my motivation to like make a great game, but also to you know pay bills and have nice cars and stuff. I was gonna say so. So, so Carmack is why you have a Lamborghini now. Uh, well, I had two and I got rid of one because I think driving is stupid. But that's another conversation for another <laughs> conversation. I can't wait for the self-driving car. Just bring it. Um, so yeah, uh, was, I mean the whole car thing in America, car culture. It's like. You're defined by your vehicle and all that, and it's just like I, I'm kind of over it now at this point. I respect cars, you know. I like. Well, you've been to the mountaintop. Let's be fair. To be I fair, mean, but I, you know, to, to put the top down and to go for a Sunday drive for 15 minutes is a fun thing. You know, the whole drive 30 minutes to 90 minutes to get to work. Like I was talking to a friend of mine who works at Naughty Dog. He lives in San. Or he works in Santa Monica where Naughty Dog is. He lives in the Valley, which is for those of you who don't know Southern California, that's a minimum of 90 minutes either way. Three hours out of your day. I'm just like, and it's just Southern California, and it's expensive. So anyway, uh, Unreal 1. So this was back when it was making Quake Test. and Yeah, know, the Q-Test. I remember when that dropped to the internet. It oh, was, yeah. Oh, was, yeah. Uh, and it just, you know, I remember the, the sounds of the spring peepers and the, the, you know, the water areas and, like, the dark, dank dungeons and the, the actual full 3D was crazy because yeah. it wasn't that fake kind of like Wolfenstein back in the day, sprite-based stuff. And um, it was like lightning fast, and that rocket launcher to rule all with the quad damage and everything. And I remember looking at that. And this was the start of my realization of that when you're making a product, you need to counter program. We were just talking about this in our panel, and Quake was largely dark Cthulhu-inspired, yes. dank dungeons with like demons. And so we're like working on as we worked through the first Unreal, we decided to go with beautiful colored lighting and sky castles and you know local uh, kind of indigenous culture, these, these, these four-armed, uh, you know, bipeds, uh, and the, you know, reptilian enemies uh, that have blades that are kind of predator-like, right? And all these kind of, you know, crashed spaceship, husks of spaceships, you know. Force Awakens was on the, you know, airplane on the way out here, and, you know, the whole scene where you have the Star Destroyer that's like, and she's exploring it, and I'm like, oh, we, I forgot we did that in the first Unreal. <laughs> and I still, one of the parting words I said, to skip ahead for two seconds, when I left Epic, is I always wanted to see kind of an Unreal 1 reboot out of somebody that's kind of like spiritually the same game, and you yeah. kind of go back to the because a lot of the ideas, you know, a giant, you know, the, the mystical powers of the, the natives on the planet could, lift, could elevate things and lift them up and have a sky city in the sky. There's very fantastic kind of Rodney Matthews kind of classic sci-fi fi- or, you know, fantasy fiction and mixed mix with sci-fi in there. And, you know, as an IP, it was always kind of fun and cool. And, you know, we got our first ever big magazine uh, cover in Next Generation magazine. And uh, that's still, you know, I still have that laying around somewhere. Well, I still remember the... the- the wonder of of that first that tut of setting foot on the planet. That, so that was the one. contrast. I, I I did the very first level, which was the Vortex Rikers ones, which was basically you know you're escaping the ship that's just crashed. 
and you're, I'm teasing in the scar alien when this is what I had already knew at that point even in my early to mid 20s that you know when you're, oh the J is silent huh at the end yeah scar <laughs> you never knew that yeah. I never knew that that was just me trying to there be, was no internet back then but that was me trying to be fancy with the IP because I wanted there to be that that one <laughs> was like actually the J is silent <laughs> you know that's so anyway, uh, that whole first level, if you go back and look it up on YouTube, you know, uh, you hear the monster. You hear the monster, you know, growling. You see, you only you see the glimpses and, and gunshots of it tearing, you know, the crew apart behind a door, and then it runs off, and you can always see you see its tail. Yeah. To the point where, like that, we went from that claustrophobic, like really explosions going off, escaping the ship, to this really wide open, beautiful kind of like it's it's like it was, we inadvertently made this kind of like metaphor for rebirthing of a character you know, mm. coming from this this horrible environment to this beautiful lush planet that later winds up to be harsh and but still nonetheless you know the 3D sky with the you know the the lit clouds yeah. and you know that it, it brought my Pentium 133 to its the Pentium 133 <laughs> you know the procedural waterfall and you know you can just jump all the way down in the water and there's actual polygonal fish in the water which was that whole level was done by a designer named Pancho Eccles um, he he still dabbles in the business but at some point he just said it decided to move to the north, northern wild of Canada and build his, he and his wife and kids a log cabin. So hey, nice. you know, he's training Reached for a Rocky out. movie or something. And um, but he was he, he was using uh, Lightwave at that point, which was a, one of the early 3D programs, kind of like uh, Max or Maya. And he tr- experimented with taking you know still relatively low poly environments, but just stretching them out, and making them just really spacious. And he wound up being responsible for what we call these hub sections, which were the wide open areas, you know, the trench where the spaceship crashed, or you know, the the, the enormous outdoor areas that you know we could you could literally be under almost a star destroyer and yeah. and kind of exploring it before you go inside and kind of explore all these different you know uh, um, alien uh, ships and, and and species because the the idea was the the planet was the Bermuda Triangle of the galaxy where ships just get sucked into its gravitational pull and everything is living on this planet trying to carve out an existence. Well, as the studio is... So Epic is... Everybody starts to get pulled into Unreal. You know, mm-hmm. you've done jazz. Uh, when, when everybody starts seeing what Tim is doing with this engine, which would, of course, go on to make, make you a whole lot of money and, yeah. and a... a, a prop, up, the, prop up the AAA industry. Yeah, I mean... Uh, was this was everybody on the team just blown away by what this what Tim was doing with this? No, engine? we were exhausted because we were. Um, the game took three to four years or so to from inception to completion. Yeah, I literally had five hundred dollars left in my bank account. Tim and Mark, you know, did not draw salary for like a year of it. Right. Wow. Um, and I was do- doing a long distance relationship with with my ex at the time, which in hindsight I found out was rather tumultuous. Once I found a whole bunch of notes in that box, by the way, but that's neither here nor there. Long distance is not a yeah, it's tough. Yeah, and Been there. you know, young people just like to fight sometimes in a bad relationship. Um, and so for me, I, you know, I, I I it was a really really tough dark period where like you know they had a temporary townhouse where I was living there with Tim Sweeney and Cedric Fiorentino, who would later go on to make Facing Worlds. Um, as well, worked on Star Wars Battle Pod recently. Hmm. So, yeah, it's and cool. uh, James Schmaltz was, you know, he's from Canada, but you know, his, uh, I think his then wife was living in London, and so which was still London, good, Ontario. Yeah, yeah, it's super cute up there. Um, I was like, why didn't can you put the studio, studio in London? But he, he put it in Waterloo because of University of Waterloo, because there's so many good engineering students that come out of there. And of course, the building that we developed the game in would later be the headquarters uh, anchor for Research in Motion for BlackBerry, <laughs> which is now who knows what's happening there. <laughs> Yeah, I think the world moved on. Circle and, uh, of life, bring it back to Elton John. But we got, you know, we got that. Like, I had to go through a winter in, in Kitchener, Waterloo, man. And it was, you know, I'm from Boston, and I was used to living in Southern California. You know, there's yeah. one to one time where, like, I had this rental car. I'd always get it at a person airport, drive all the way over there. And somebody broke into my car, and it snowed. And I'm driving back to the apartment with the wind, and there's, oh. like, snow and, and like... 
I mean, I'm not digging you know, salt mine here, but I mean, I, I'm making a video game. I'm not curing cancer, but it's still like, it's just like, I just want to eat my curry and go home and ship this game. And, um, and then, you know, we, of course, didn't get a lot of money off the first Unreal because the publisher kind of us and whatnot. Was that a Infograms? Uh, it was GT Interactive back then. That's the day. right. Yeah. Yes. I don't know the actual full history because Tim and Mark always, you know, me being the creative, they just kind of like will deal with all yeah. this crap. All I know is, you know, we didn't see a ton of money off that, which we then rapidly went into Unreal Tournament, and then that's when we started. Really well, that's it. Money. Always surprised me as a gamer that Unreal Two didn't come around until years later when uh, you guys had Legend Entertainment yeah. do it. The guys that had done the Wheel of Time yeah, game. Ran into Scott Dalton actually. Oh, he's at Valve now. Um, so it's two degrees of separation now. Facebook's like, yeah, it's 3.6. I'm like, no, it's two, especially in, in this <laughs> business. Um, so yeah, the, uh, Unreal 2 is an interesting time period because I was kind of act- acting as executive producer, and there's a lot of talent at Legend right there, yeah. but they wanted to make their own game, which I've, I respect the hell out of. You know, They made Wheel of Time uh, based on the Robert Jordan yep. best-selling series, Novels. which is a really cool, you know, they had this kind of spy versus spy, spy trap mode you can do and everything, and absolutely gorgeous game. And then it's like, well, now you're going to make Unreal 2 for these guys. And, and you could tell the, the, the creatives at Legend were like, dude, we just made Wheel of Time, like we're, we're hardcore. We make these beautiful story-based games. Now you just want to make a sci-fi shooter about predator-looking characters, and so I wasn't really managing the IP at that point. It wound up being this weird Highlander Two kind of offshoot, <laughs> and it, it wasn't inherently a bad game, but you could tell it was very disjointed development. Where each LD, each designer was making. Yeah, their own it turned out fine, but it just didn't. It didn't land the way Unreal landed. It, it just wasn't really an Unreal game. They had a whole hub you went back to. In hindsight, the, your crew's captain, uh, the the female character. Character's design was quite ridiculous, especially if you look at it now in 2016, or boobs hanging out and everything. And uh, you know, and there's interesting characters in the ship, and everybody always says they're going to do a hub, and they never do a hub, but they did. And uh, you know, it was a solid game, but with the expectations of the first Unreal, and the fact that it wasn't the original team, you know, the press kind of trashed it. You know, and this, I think this is about 2002, three, somewhere around the yeah, 2002-ish time frame, if I recall. I remember talking about it at Dice uh, in Las Vegas one time. What? What's your fondest memory of the original Unreal before you moved on to UT? Um, it was, well, for me... you said, it, it sounds like, you know, it was a, sort of a nightmare in your, in your life. This was when I was at the age where you either go to the movies or you go to the mall and there really wasn't anything else to do. I didn't, yeah. start, I didn't even drink until like, I was 25. Made up for it since then. <laughs> um, and then, you know, like, I'd come home to where I was living in uh, Ontario, California. The irony's not lost to me going between Ontario Canada. and Canada. Uh, <laughs> And so, like, you know, there's the, the, the outlet mall there. I can't remember what it's called. Something Mills or, like, one of those. I've driven by it a million yeah, times. Yeah, the way to um, Palm Springs to have a nice <laughs> vacation and just get the hell through it. And um, I'd drive down to that outlet mall and just, you know, hang out at, like, you know, like Virgin Records or whatever, which is where I first got my copies of Preacher and learned to love Preacher. Don't f*** it up, Seth Rogen. And there's a, a giant standee for the first Unreal that was in the front of, like, yeah. you know, Electronics Boutique or whatever it was With at the, the time. With scar on it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was the moment I was like, you know, the CDFOV shift on me, like, oh my god, this is a real thing. Because, you know, now I'm all on Team Digital in regards to games, you know, and, you know, we just announced Lawbreakers is going to be on Steam, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. However, back then, to have a product on store shelves felt weird and magical. Absolutely. And that was one of those things where, like, you know, and then when it finally hit, you could hold the box, and, like, there was a real product of, you know, three plus years of everybody slogging their asses up to this college town that had nothing to do besides work in a game. <laughs> um, that's, that's when it felt pretty, pretty real and magical. Did you feel like Unreal Tournament is when you kind of found your true calling? Because that seems to, that if you look at your, your career history yeah. since then, it seems like Unreal Tournament sort of set the, set the tone yeah, for what, what has been it, the rest it, of your career to date. For Unreal Tournament, you know, this idea of, you know, like, you know, and of course Gears had its whole single player component, but the idea of a shooter 
And to be honest, we, you know, I've said this before, we do shooters because it's the easiest way to interact with the world. You know, it's a trace, bang, bang, something, you know, shoot it, shoot the, the pot, it breaks, shoot the bad guy, falls over, right? And he's like, if he falls over with good ragdoll, even better. Um, but this, you know, it's kind of, you know, shooter, you know, even going back to jazz, you know, was, jazz was inherently a shooter game. And so it's one of those situations where, like, people playing together, you know, either on a, on a LAN party or in a, on the online space, like, yeah. that's... That's that's really a lot of the bread and butter of what you know I, why I enjoy this genre. And the funny thing was was the first Unreal's multiplayer was completely broken. Like Tim didn't test the netcode. I remember we all went online to play it, and like it just was bro- it was completely broken. And so that's one of the other limiting factors for the first game, which is why we chose to make the second game with Brandon Reinhardt, who's now crushing it at Valve on Dota. Um, so again, two degrees of separation. <laughs> um, and then I remember this was at the time again living in Southern California. This is when GameSpy was over in Orange County, and they'd throw what they called Bastard's Beatdown. Uh, one, one of the main guys, Mark Surface, who was one of the guys responsible for the games by browser, would throw these just these LAN parties. And I'd drive out there, my 91 Saturn, and <laughs> play the game all night, and just drive home bleary-eyed in the morning. Yeah. And that's when I really learned a lot about, like, you know, Quake, and, how, and you know, I think Quake 2 was out at the time, and learning how to really, like, hone a multiplayer game that I then applied to the f- look and feel of what Unreal Tournament would become. So Unreal Tournament ended up, I remember well, I mean, it, uh, there was this rivalry, at least in, amongst the community the, uh, of gamers, between Quake 3 Arena and yeah. Unreal Tournament. They ended up, I, I remembered them coming out very close together, and when I went and looked it up, two days apart. Was it? They were two days apart. They shipped virtually at the exact same time. Yeah, this was this was the this was my professional like you know, Rocky versus Creed. Yeah, did type. you did you guys feel the was there a rivalry to you? Internally? Oh yeah, yeah. I remember the you know we were at GDC that year and a bunch of id guys came over. This was the new guard. This is when you know Paul Steed was there, et cetera. Rest in peace, Paul. Um, as well as Brian Hook and about a lot of those yeah, folks. Yeah, Graham. Yeah, and Graham, which I actually hung out with last night. Um, great guy. And so they you know they all come over and they saw you know that what we were pulling off with. Which was technically not as good a technology because Carmack had all the curved surfaces and like the level with the giant tongue. Weird, it's weird. Yeah, I know. remember that. Um, and then you know we had this kind of you know lower polygon but higher resolution textures um, and our, our own look and feel and our own more unique weapons that weren't just as oh, simple. Oh, flag thing. cannon, uh, the bio gun, the translocator, all that stuff, oh, yeah. right? Um, and our settings were kind of fun and cool. We had like a pirate ship. We had like a castle in the sky. We a lot had of maps too. Worlds, a lot. Um, and uh, then, you know, we came out and did pretty well. And I, I can't remember what the final sales numbers were, but, I mean, we came out, you know, slinging in regards to, you know, the you know, C, uh, Computer Gaming World's Game of the Year at that point. Um, and, you know, Quake 3 Arena still is a classic, oh, yeah. wonderful experience. Their movement is still, in my opinion, better than UT's. Um, but, you know, we, we just felt like we showed up for the fight and we, we did okay. Yeah. You know, even if, you know, I can't remember, again, I don't remember the sales panned out, but, you know, we felt like we'd... Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Check out new episodes Mondays and Fridays for a wide variety of topics and news episodes. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Rage on. Finally arrived. So then you move. Then gears, uh, gears comes along out of the out of the, the oh, not do, warfare, warfare also, tech demo. Well, right? was first there was Unreal Tournament 2003, which was kind right. of the follow with, with, up with digital extremes. Yeah, and we also did uh, we ported the Unreal Tournament to PlayStation to Xbox, 2, PlayStation Two. There's a Dreamcast version as well. There's a lot of Unreal there. My brother, <laughs> my eldest brother, who doesn't even play games, like what's next? Unreal the damn musical? Like how much Unreal? <laughs> can, and that's why I'm sitting here. Can we make a new IP? Can we make a new IP? Yeah. And so we're doing Unreal Tournament. Unreal Tournament 2004 comes out, and it's, it kind of has a resurgence of the IP. We do the vehicle mode. Yep. 
Fun fact about that vehicle mode, if you remember the Scorpion vehicle, the little buggy that had the blades come out of it mm-hmm. from the onslaught mode, later wound up being a stunt mode that was a mod that was done by, uh, I can't remember, I think it's Nathan Overman or Ben Beckwith, one of uh, Dave Haigwood's uh, talented folks, that that code morphed eventually into what became Rocket League. Interesting. So when I ran into you know Jess Haigwood, who runs the studio with Dave last night, and he, you know one of, she's one of the folks that I hug you know in the hotel lobby, and uh, she had some of her folks from Psionics with her, and I I, I joke with her about their overnight success because they'd been at it for 15 years, and, you know they almost shut the studio down at one point, and now you know she's like come on you're coming you come to San Diego let's hang out blah 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 because we always bonded over dogs, um, and uh, so that code wound up being that, but then UTO4 did pretty darn well, yeah, but it was still game. at the point where like can we just make something new because at the time. I've been watching Band of Brothers, and I've been really paying attention. Like, when you're young, at least for me as a kid, and you learn about World War II, you're like, whatever, I'm going to go watch G.I. Joe, right? Like, you don't really know what was at stake. You don't have the gravity. You really don't. Like, you know, Private Ryan Ryan hadn't come out, which I think should be shown to kids at, like, sixth grade and whatnot, (laughs) even though it's horribly violent. Um, And so it's one of those things where I became this fascination with this kind of, like, World War II desaturated kind of, like, War is hell, gravitas, right? Yeah. Um, and then you know we started building up the first version of it, which was going to be like enemy territory with vehicles, quake wars type of thing that was just codename warfare. Yeah. And then uh, we really then uh, Resident Evil Four came out, and that's and then we got the uh, spherical harmonic rendering of Unreal Engine Three first pass up, and we looked at this like three D rendered soldier that looked really cool, and we looked at Resident Evil Four. And we looked at what we were building, and we're like, okay, we need a, a regular campaign component with this, as, of course, eventually multiplayer. Right. But we need to tell, you know, go back to making a campaign, telling a story, and building a universe. And that's where, like, you know, kind of the, the whole Gears thing came about, but it was codenamed Warfare for, like, years for a while. So that's, that's, when, that's when it becomes Gears of War in your head well, at that point? Part of it initially from, like, the gestation of what Warfare was going to be was a GDC tech demo you can still find on YouTube. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. Whereas the, the dude in the cog armor fighting the kind of, uh, what was called Geist at the time, Nintendo's that ghost game made us have to dumpster that name for Locust instead. You know, they're like fighting underground and there's like a random like deployment of drop ships and the one dude rips off the other dude's arm and beats him to death with it and which later wound up being in like years three or, or, or whatnot. And, um, you know, somebody from uh, our publisher at the time, uh, it was actually Microsoft, I think it was uh, Jim Vivert, came to our, saw our GDC demo and he's like, that's the kind of stuff we need for what we're doing next. Like we need a cinematic kind of cool shooter war world. Of course, Halo was, you know, in the process of blowing up, becoming big for them. Right. And um, I wanted our, you know, I looked at Halo and as much as I respected and appreciated Halo, Halo always felt like bright and cheery and like, you know, you're fighting little guys, you're like, ah, they're everywhere. And, you know, you're, you're, you're shooting purple guns and things like that. And everything's very, very lush and green and with the fantastic music, but I'm like, I wanted to be like the, the rated R, like the darker version of that. You it's know, it's kind of funny that you're saying this because you're describing the exact opposite of with Unreal, where you were, you were counter-programming yeah. Well, yeah, the gritty exactly. thing with the bright thing, and, and now, now you wanted and, to counter-program the bright thing with the gritty it. thing. So from 2006 to 2016, you, we saw the shift from the Zack Snyder desaturated browns of you know Gears and Killzone all the way to like you we're at Overwatch and Battleborn which look like completely every color they look like a Pixar film yeah um, and then I'm gonna try what I'm gonna try and do with the game we're bringing out Lawbreakers is find the halfway point to bring it back to something that's you know a little bit of colors but you know not full on every color and you know actually has some swearing and violence and is actually a little edgier the kind yeah. of a grown up version of that but I'm getting ahead of myself now yeah we'll get to Lawbreakers but l- legend has it that the, so, that uh, you guys in particular Gears of War and Epic Games are Mo- are effectively responsible for the Xbox 360 having 512 megs of RAM in it. Yeah, it was uh, Tim Sweeney um, 
and Mark Rain went and uh, you know to kiss the ring with Microsoft. Because it had 256 in it at one point. Yeah, I, I think it was Shane Kim. I can't remember who's in charge at the time, but Tim's like, this this is this isn't going to work. Like, the, you really, if, you, if you're going to make a, a, a new system that's going to clearly look better than the first Xbox, you need to double down on the RAM. And you know, your cost of goods will go up, et cetera, et cetera. But again, you, know, you make it a loss leader. You'll make it up with you know game fee sales and everything in the back yeah. end. And uh, yeah, that wound up costing Microsoft a lot of upfront money, but it wound up making sure that the Xbox 360 was a very great system and had a lot of great games. And Halo was nowhere to be found at the time. That was the other right, thing. Right, not, not with the three, yeah, it didn't come till much later. Exactly, so, you know, if you look at that generation of gamers with the first Gears, you know, it was a, a, a great campaign, you could co-op it, and it had a solid multiplayer that was almost cut out of the game, too, by the way, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> yes, it is. That's exactly why we're here. Well, that's my old boss I was chatting with last <laughs> night, Mike Caps. Um, he and I, you know, he's, he's hilarious. How does, how does Gears 1 multiplayer almost get cut? Well, I mean, it was just like we always say about, you know, with the current game we're building, we're building the freeway while the car's going at 9,000 miles an hour on fire. And, you know, this, we're under intense pressure from Microsoft to get this game out for holiday, yeah. um, doing the E3 demos and all that. And they didn't really think the cover-based gameplay would be any fun. And Lee Perry was spearheading a lot of the level design at the time. And we made maps that felt a lot like Counter-Strike. You know, where Counter-Strike in hindsight actually is very good at having a front, but some of the Counter-Strike maps, the one with the house in particular, somewhat more like Call of Duty. It was a bit porous. And we found that, you know, the gears is kind of slow clunkiness and slow turning speed and radius of the, the analog sticks that people getting behind you was, you know, kind of frustrating. And if, they, and if they earn that getting behind you from, you know, covering fire and taking cover, then they should be able to kill you and chainsaw you or, or, or shock on you. Which, and then eventually they made, uh, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Lee Perry or Jim Brown made the map Gridlock, which was kind of the archetypical gears map. The original. Where, like, you start off yeah. with kind of the half donut and, you know, everyone go, 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 go. And they can kind of see and shoot each other a little bit at range, but they can't really do much. And that's when the game of hide-and-go-kill starts yeah. happening. And then I originally wanted a Counter-Strike type of system where you bought, essentially, weapons between rounds. Hmm. But Rod Ferguson, a badass producer, realized, because I was a little green with production at the time, that time still even, you know, with the UI work and, and balancing and all that. And he, Rod made the executive decision to go, dude, we just gonna, let's throw some power weapons in the map. And that, that'll be the, the attractors for, you know, why people run throughout the map and the boom shots and the grenades and all that. So, you know, your default weapons are pretty cool. But let's let's make the even easier easier killing devices like you know the carrots that kind of drive the the gameplay and the flow of the maps, right? So take me back to uh, you do Gears Two and then Gears Three. You've you've kind of touched on on Twitter about how uh, the story arc. You know, we talked a little bit about about the Adam Phoenix stuff with that. We never actually really came back to that. So how how did the the arc of of the Gears plot sort of mirror what was going on in your in your life. Uh, well, Gears one, you know, I had a starter marriage. I always joke about it, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah, me and too. That, you get your first one out of the way, right? Yeah, we learn balance by falling. <laughs> and you know, not to speak ill, because you know we were young and whatnot. But it is what it is. Um, but you know, I was going through like a, you know a, a divorce, which is a very painful yeah. process. And this was the period where, like, during the divorce, I was listening to the, uh, Mad World. Uh, which I'd never told anybody about, by the way. That was like my own little quiet, like, you know, cry myself to sleep, you know, because my life was yeah. at that time song. And wait for it, Evanescence is my immortal. <laughs> which is really cheesy, but it's still. Sign actually, of the Times. It's all right. It's, too, it's like 2000. It's a really good song. It's a really fine. good song. And, uh, you know, so then, you know, that the dust was settling for that. I was actually GDC, because in North Carolina, if you're going through divorce, you have to wait a year. Uh, before oh. it's weird Southern laws, man. Like, are you sure? Are you yeah. sure? And I was at GDC when I got a, uh, the message from my lawyer that like everything had been settled. It's, that's why GDC is such a homecoming for me. Hmm. Um, and uh, and so I was going through that like really tough period. Like, you know, I was back to only like you know to being in a five hundred dollar a month apartment a block away from you know Epic. You know, I had lost most of my Unreal and Unreal tournament money. 
back at square one. You know, I had just like this old car and everything, and you know, was basically burning everything down and starting over. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the that's why Marcus was called the Phoenix because that was my personal right. kind of you yeah. know, come rising from the ashes. And um, and then uh, you know, the the whole daddy thing also was in there too. And this was like such an intense period of my life. Like you think about if you remember ten years ago, two thousand six or so time frame ish when you know I, I had to demo gears on stage at you know the uh, Grauman's or whatever they call it, Chinese theater in Hollywood there you know hey Bill Gates we're being filmed for MTV let's do this live demo in hindsight I'm sitting here going like you cocky little <laughs> you had no idea Cliff what you'd like the significance of this point in your life hmm. for you know turning your career around to turning around your personal life to turning around your finances to making a pop culture phenomenon that was a billion dollar IP that people tattoo their body with and stuff uh, you know, that's the thing about, you know, quick side note, was I joined, I'm serving in the advisory board of this, uh, you know, charity they called Stack Up that brings uh, games to troops uh, who are deployed as well as give them games to kind of help a little bit, you know, once they're home with, you know, PTSD and things yeah. like that. And the amount of tr- uh, soldiers that have come up to me and told me that, you know, they had they have whatever rig, you know, and, uh, you know, whatever, you know, Af- Afghanistan, Iraq, wherever they were, you know, to play the game to, you know, with their friends and co-op and split screen and all that to kind of get, the, get them through the time and then show sure. me, you know, like the cog tags that they have of their fallen friends. They actually died over wow. there and everything. I'm just like, you know, I think the least I can do is, you know, serve in this, you know, charity and kind of, you know, help out because I always say support the troops because, you know, you and I aren't getting shot at. Um, anyway, so then, uh, you know, the whole arc of Gears wound up ultimately being, you know, the end of Gears. So Mike, Mike, at this point, my favorite place to go during crunch time uh, during the Gears franchise was the coast of North Carolina. It's really beautiful out there. Um, the winter, it's you know, it's a little quiet and everything, but it's just you know, it's an hour and forty-five, two hours away is the closest one, mm-hmm. and that wound up being like my super happy place, like to just go there and just drink a beer and just read a book, yeah. or you know, and call up the, the the service that would basically like you know, hey bro, with the auger sticking the umbrella, two chairs. At the end of the day, they grab it and run off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you know, having bounced back fiscally after the first uh, Gears one. You know, and the, the you know Microsoft cut you know Epic a, a good check. You know, and I went from like you know very very little in my bank account to finally be, like being really comfortable again. Yeah. And then if, you know decided to you know move into a, this was actually in the uh, I was dating uh, my ex uh, uh, the new ex at the time. I dated a lot, um, and she was in the Gears of War MTV special. And then I was in the middle of the Mad World meeting one day, and she texts me, and she's like, entertain me, I'm bored. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm at this turning point making this game that's going to completely, hopefully, turn around my life right now, and you want me to entertain you? What is wrong with you? I mean, to be fair, I was like 30, and she was 19, and so she's very young 19. And um, and I actually broke up with her on the MTV special. Well, then. <laughs> Before I went to E3, because that was an actual breakup. Because I'm like, I don't need this right now. Like, you don't, you know, your family's well off. You know, I'm starting over here. Like, I don't need this, uh, yeah. th- I can't babysit, you know, and then give you attention for this right now. We later d- dated for a little while longer, et cetera, and it, it was what it was, but it was one of those situations that, you know, starting over in the Gears 2 time frame, you know, that was when we were full-on, like, cliffy mode, and, like, the Gears 2 multiplayer, man, I'm, Dave Nash and I, the old... Chainsaw duels. Yeah, but it was broken at first, if you remember. That was just when Call of Duty was really getting the, the console traction oh, yeah. to become the phenomenon that it is today. And this was the point where he had the Gears won our fans, and then it was classic innovator syndrome with uh, Gears 2, where if you change too much, you've ruined the game. If you don't change anything, they just say it's Gears 1.5. So you're damned if you do, you're damned if yep. you don't. Um, and still people are like, Gears 1 was the best. I personally think Gears 3 was, but that's neither here nor there. I agree. Um, well, that's when we really honed things, and we had dedicated servers and everything. And you know, we really had multiple game types, like different characters. Women in the battle it up. It was it was cool. And then um, you know, going back to Gears Two, those coming home and like when that game came out and the big marketing campaign, and then watching the little cogs spin for matchmaking, and spin, 
and spin and just being like, Fuck. you know, like this was this was also the era where everyone was really wisening up to renting games and trading in games, you know, and, and you know, because hey, if I was you know back at that phase where I was broke and you know only had thirty nine ninety nine, sixty bucks is a lot of money. Yeah, dude, it is. Um, it's a good dinner, and so you know I would have done it too. You know, I'm not gonna do that rant, but about the whole used games thing. But there's a hole in the bucket. And that's money that's not going back to pay for you know increasingly ridiculous development budgets and feature sets. That's a whole other conversation. Um, and so that's when gears like kind of hit this glass ceiling. It was first game six million, second game's going on, it hits this glass ceiling, boom, six million. And that's where like gears somehow hit this like six or so million copies sold ceiling. Um, which you know when I was at Epic, I was thinking about you know before I left, you know if we're going to do another gears, how do we even get past that? Right. Jokingly thinking about what would a first person gears look like, things like that, right? Huh. Um, that's the, you know it's ancient history you know and I think Rod and, and Microsoft or, you know, or Rod and uh, Coalition are going to do a great job with it. I'm dying to play it. Send me a copy. Um, and uh, and then Gears Three, of course, is kind of the culmination of everything with like Horde you know, 2.0. Uh, yeah, well, that's when you know like I I, I first you know started uh, seeing Lauren and like it was one of those things that you know Anya was originally incepted as this kind of character as your dispatch, your Sherpa, your guide as the Phoenix to get out of there. Um, and then to have her evolve into kind of like, you know, I saw a lot of Lorne in Anya in Gears 3, and the, the, I told my cinematics director and, and, and the writer, Gears 3 has to end once all the shit hits the fan, you know, and sadly Marcus sees his father just crumble in front of him and, 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 and sacrifice himself because he experimented on himself with the emulsion like right. the Curies did, right? Um, and then to have him go turn into dust, and then, you know, Marcus, he's so tired, and, you know, and, and you never see him without his armor up to that point. Even at the beginning, he's kind of shrouded. And for me, the whole him walking down to the beach and taking the armor off was like my whole metaphor for going to the coast of Carolina and that first feeling when your feet get in the warm sand and you just kind of walk you know, down and just and, and just that relaxation of the coast and the whole removing the armor and like landing and the, and the idea of you know it's always kind of alluded to that, like Marcus and Anya kind of like each other a lot. There's a good relationship there. Who knows if it could blossom into romance or whatnot? But the idea of you know she says we have a tomorrow. And that's, you know, which if you saw J.D. Phoenix, you know, you know, Marcus, the son, who I don't even remember if they wanted using Anya. I hope they did. Um, But, you know, the whole she just all she does is put her hand on his and then she puts her head in his shoulder. And that was like me and Lauren at the beach escaping from crunch time. So it's Mm kind of like the full circle. And this is why, you know, I see developers and I always gush because I think she's awesome is uh, Nina Freeman doing Sabelle. You know, the fact that here's. Uh, a rock star game designer who made a game, you know, a simple narrative-based game, but about the time she had her heart broken in an MMO, and she acted in herself and everything about, you know, the meeting this guy online, losing her, losing their virginity together, and then he's just like, "See ya," and I'm just like, "Oh my god!" Like that's why, you know, the kind of games I like these days are the simple little personal ones, and that in VR stuff. Those so, are the ones that I like. Were after you know, you're going through the divorce, this, this whole Gears arc uh, that, that's mirroring your your own life. Are you, are you seeing a therapist through all this, or is is the making of the games the therapy? Oh no, I was uh, I was done with therapy at that point, and you know it's it's for some reason people are weird about talking about therapy in this country. Like, dude, I dude, went after my divorce. Dude, having a person that you can talk to that is going to give you like their own somewhat objective but not judgy opinion that you're paying for this is like the greatest thing ever. And so I was seeing a therapist at, uh, at the time, which is eventually made me realize that I shouldn't be married. That was what led to that. Yeah. So that was at the point where, you know, I basically, you know, was like, why, why am I even 
married. Why, why did I do this? I'm, uh, you know, in the 20, uh, 29 years old, a week before my 30th birthday, that's when I moved out and got that, that tiny little apartment and then eventually started dating uh, the, my ex from the MTV special, et cetera. So that was kind of that whole thing. But, um, you know, it's one of those things. Marriage is a, is a beautiful thing regardless of who's doing it. For two people to stand in front of their peers and community and to dedicate and to promise to dedicate themselves for the rest of their lives, it's not easy. But, man, it's like, you know, people out there just, you know, really make sure you know you know the person you're going to marry before you really ever consider it because it's in people's people change you know and if you're going to grow in a relationship this just got really heavy grow together you know like yeah, the, the, there's this absolutely. AI, when i first started dating lauren i used this whole phrase with her because like the other day um you know she's still getting ready because she's got the crazy hair right now and i'm sitting you know in the hotel restaurant you know having a, 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 a large rather large espresso since we all hang out late night at these events and i have a grapefruit night i haven't had grapefruit in a long time i don't think she's ever even seen me eat a grapefruit it's like it's like a, like a nice light breakfast i got a busy day yeah. maybe i'll have some some yogurt she comes down she's like what is that you never eat grapefruit i've known you for like seven years now i've never seen you eat a single grapefruit i'm like let me have a grapefruit <laughs> and it goes back to that old commercial it's like the really old 70s or 80s one about jim never has a second cup of coffee which is i'm really dating myself right now but <laughs> that's the whole thing i'll explain that commercial to lauren i'm like you know what if jim wants a second cup of coffee let jim have a second cup of coffee you know if suddenly i get home you know one day and lauren's like hey i decided to take one of those like you know ballet type classes with you know the cirque du soleil type you know fabric and whatnot i'll be like you, you go do that yeah. as opposed to this isn't the person i thought i, I don't knew. change well, yeah you know and it's in that's the thing is you know we dated for two and a half years before she knew that i'm a beast at karaoke so <laughs> so then how do you is this is this why this reinvention of cliff as as gears comes to a close is this why you walked away? Because no, you, no, you I walked away because I got paid. You retired. Yeah. So you People, could you had, keep, you had you must have had options or some sort of vesting yeah, thing. No, it's in, simple. You know, this big Chinese and, company comes along, and they you know I had a chunk of ownership in Epic. They buy out forty percent of it without any you know strings attached. And Epic at the time, and I say this very carefully because they've they've really kind of changed into their own entity. With Paragon looks cool, Fortnite looks cool. Like their their engines look great. We're using it ourselves. It's great. But at the time, there was this whole like. Gears was kind of a fluke, you know. And I could pitch any idea to the company, and inevitably, I'd have somebody in my office going, "I don't buy it." And it was one of these situations where, like, you know, I had a, a game idea where it was evil corporations, right? And you know, one of one of the jaded programmers who shall not be named at the time comes into my office, like, "Really, corporations? Really?" And I'm like, "Dude, you have if you're gonna make a game like the one I was pitching, you have pretty much pirates, ninjas, zombies, aliens, r- r- robots. There's like." Ten archetypes. You pick one. You know, Batman beats up clowns for a living. I mean, you gotta you gotta pick one thing and go with it. And um, that was when like I really just started creatively getting kind of frustrated. And yeah. you know, I was I was helping out with Fortnite, trying to figure out are we gonna do another Gears game? I don't know. Um, and then uh, you know the the buyout came in, and I tried to renegotiate my contract, and they couldn't come to any sort of terms. And I was like, actually, the irony was, um, one day I just stopped going to work, which in hindsight was really unprofessional and not a cool bit. And, and disrespectful to Tim. But I, I, I you know, we, they tried to negotiate for a couple months. Couldn't come to terms, so I just strong-armed it. I was like, I'm just not going to come to work. And I go down to the beach with Lauren. This was uh, late summer that year, and uh, it was a gorgeous evening. It's, the breeze was going and everything, and I, I get a phone call. I'm you know, sitting at it, down at the beach. I get a phone call from Tim. Hey, uh, Cliff. Uh, that's my Tim voice. So, uh, you know, can we, can we talk? You haven't been at work. And I'm like, uh, Tim, I'm at the beach. I'm like two hours away. He's like, he's like yeah, I'm here. He had driven his Corvette all wow. the way from Raleigh down to the beach to walk on the beach with me and, and try and say, like, dude, you got to come back to work or you got to go. Like, I can't deal with this indecision yeah. right now. And I sat there overnight and thought about it. The next day, I sent him my resignation. Wow. And so that's the big thing about, you know, what the beach means to me and the, the Carolina shore 
is the fact that I realize a lot of my big decisions in my adult life I've made down there. Hmm. You know, the decision to, to leave Epic, the, the, um, the realizing I was going to marry Lauren, uh, the decision to start Boss Key, you know, a lot of the ideas about Lawbreakers, they all happen down there, right? And so that's your that's, spot. That's your well, happy That was the place. moment, you know, walking on the beach with her during crunch time one time, and I, I swore I would never get married again, you know? And if we first started dating, I'm like, no, f- marriage is stupid. F- owning a house, blah, blah, blah. And, and then, uh, you know, she broke me. And so, you know, I remember holding her hand, looking back at her, you know, walk, walking on a, on a beautiful beach. And I turn around, and I go, I'm going to have to marry you, aren't I? She's like, what? And then, of course, you know, I asked her family and, you know, did it the right way and everything. But, uh, yeah, you know, I like to say, Ryan, that, like, I like failed personal and professional endeavors because they teach you what you will and will not put up with. Right. You know, like, after dating, all, you know, being married once, dating a lot uh, in between, and then... Um, you know, finding Lauren and, and her being this wonderful, unique, beautiful flower who's so freaking awesome puts up with my I was like, look, hey, I like A, B, and C. I don't put up with X, Y, and Z. Can you do that? And she's like, yeah, I can do that. I'm like, good, we'll be good. And so it's communication, man. Communication's hard, you know? It's so the key to any relationship. Do you, do you have, do you have a, your lawyer or anybody that's calling you, telling, telling, you know, trying to talk you out of walking away? Um, it's like, uh, hey, Cliff, this is a bad idea. You're 30-something. Why are you doing this? Yeah, no, I was represented by um, uh, Wayne, who's my lawyer. We actually had dinner last night. He's a good dude. And then um, uh, Ophir Lupu, if you know, Ophir's kind of the mega agent who's, you know, he, he actually technically represented me for almost like 10 years before he tried to renegotiate with Epic. Um, mm-hmm. And he represented, uh, you know, Ken Levine, uh, you know, a bunch of these kind of rock star developers. And uh, it was one of those things, Ophir's, you know, I'm like, I wanted to try and stay at Epic. I wasn't really a fan of the way the environment had been going at the time. Um, but also, I had enough money in the bank that I could, you know, I mean, it's, it was a lot of money, man. And it was one of those situations like, you know, in San Francisco, you know, you could live comfortably, but in Raleigh, you live like a king. Well, it's Lamborghini money at that you, point. You can get a, a gorgeous house for 300 grand out there. You wow. know, that's, yeah. that's my favorite thing when I try and hire somebody from Bosque off the West Coast. You know, the, the significant other gets on Zillow and they're on the realtor.com. They're like, Wait, what? <laughs> I can have an acre? Holy crap. And it's, it's not like we're in the middle of absolutely like Fargo. Like, you know, we're in a mini Austin that's on the up and up and has yeah. organic food and food trucks and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I was at the point where I was like, well, dude. And then um, a couple of years prior, this gentleman named Brendan Aribi came to the Epic offices with a duct tape phone that you could hold up to your face and look around it environments <laughs> with that was developed by John Carmack and Palmer Lucky. And this was again. I used the, that thing at E3 a few years ago to play Doom Three. Yep. And, and this was in the middle of this whole like you know I, I had I had some of the money from the investment and I had, wasn't ready to renegotiate yet. And I was just you know checking this out. Brendan's cool. Um, he had founded and, and sold like three companies with you know Scaleform, Guy Kai with Dave Perry, et cetera, et cetera. He knew it. He's a smart dude, very uh, sharky in a good way. And I hold this thing up, and I, I was a believer in virtual reality the first time. I did Dactyl Nightmare. I, I just Back in the to, mall. Yeah, I just wanted to, like, believe, even though it, it, it didn't work the first time. I didn't, never, never bought the virtual buy. I thought that was stupid. Um, and so then, you know, I, I sit there, and it, it wasn't Doom 3 that I played. It was a, a Rage level. Hmm. That was that kind of Kenneth Scott-looking high-tech stuff. And I remember looking over this ledge in VR, and I felt something. And, you know, for me, I have this kind of meter, like, is this, does, this, does, this, does this inspire me? Does this make me yeah. feel something, which has helped me with my sensibilities with what I do, um, pacing, et cetera. And I looked down, and the quote I gave to, like, Wired or somebody at the time was, I gazed into the abyss, and the abyss also gazed into me. Like, I really felt something. And I, after looking at it for, like, you know, a minute, I put the phone down. I look at Brendan. I'm like, I want in on this. This is going to be big. So I put a chunk of money into that, forgot about it for two to three years. Then one day I'm in my uh, home gym working out. I see the message, you know, Oculus acquired by Facebook, and I'm like, <laughs> and my, well then. My other friend who'd invested as well starts texting me, and we're, we start start going, and we're like, 
okay. And that was the, the you know. Life is good. My friend in the Bay Area here started a place called Itza, by the way. It's self-serving quinoa. You should try it. It's supposed to be rather good. It's very, that's very Bay Area. Yeah, it, it's so Bay Area. I'm like, is, 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 are we on the show Silicon Valley right now, right? Um, and I'm like, is that going to play in Boise? I don't know. I'm like, but quinoa, what's that? And uh, I had sent him emails like, you know, is this Oculus thing look kind of like, you know, is this legit investing? Like, what series is this? Blah, blah, blah. He's like, I don't know, dude. And so he still has that email and he shows it to his Bay Area friends. I'm like, like, you mother <laughs> It's one of those things, you know, prior to that point, Ryan, any investment I'd ever put money into financially just crashed and burned. And so for this one, you know, to really hit and for, yeah. and it's, this is for me, and this, you know, let's take the idea that I made, made a good amount of money over and put that over here. Right. The idea of my joking, like I, I have a saying, I know a good thing when I see it. You know, like, you know, start Bosky with Ariane, you know, who's a rock star C, uh, COO, uh, Lauren, you know, Raleigh on the up and up. You know, like the people I associate with, you know, um, the, 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 the entertainment that I enjoy. I'd like you to trust think, your gut. That's the thing is, you know, you can, you can quantify and listen to the quants and look at the data and look at the market research and all that. But at the end of the day, your gut is the thing that really will help drive a person's personal and professional life, right? You know, whether or not something's a good thing. And, you know, like when I first met Lauren, you know, well, first off, she won this Miss Video Game competition years back, and she showed up on the blogs, and I was like, that's my next, that's my next girlfriend. Um, and then I built up confidence dating a lot in order to actually reach out to her. And, um, and then I, was, I saw her in the, her, her page, and I was like, she's a, a Counter-Strike pro player and everything like that. And I looked at the photos, and I'm like, oh, my God, she's gorgeous. Like, she's completely out of my league. Oh, my God. And so eventually I got up the cockiness to be like, what's up? How you doing? And then I, I called her and started talking to her, and she's so sweet and kind and nice. And then I found out she's from Louisiana, and I met her family out of New Orleans. And her family is just like open arms, loving, wonderful, great, great people. And I'm like, oh, it makes sense now, you know. Like it's it's. You, you gotta marry the family too. That's really, dude. <laughs> like they're I lucked out with that. Like they're you know they're the sweetest, kindest people, and they, we do crawfish boils, and I throw second line parades with them when we're in New Orleans, and I hire the band and everything, and it's and uh, they just you know I I always hug all of them, and we're all just like super close. I know I'm starting to run out of time with you, but I got to come back to this trust in your gut thing because it, it brings me back to a point. I always like to ask developers this, and I know you're going to have an opinion on it one way or the other, and that's. You know how how are you, how do you feel about uh, community feedback and integrating that into the development of a game? Because I always like to I, I am of of the mind where this, this is about you, but just to, to set up the context, yeah. like you know, I thought the Mass Effect three thing was a fiasco, and I I was all for Bioware. They're the artists, mm-hmm. and so the, that the way that whole thing went was I. Hated how that whole thing went. Uh, what, what, how are, what do you think as as a person who trusts their gut, but also makes games and does have a community that supports you, and you need to support them? How it's do you a, feel it's, about it's a fine line because that? you're not just dumping a product out there and saying F- you, eat, you know, take it. Right. You know, you're dealing with a community that's going to want you know wants to play your game. That you're on the third game, and they're not happy with your ending. And you know, if you can do like remind people that your game exists, I think it was a business decision at that point to keep Mass Effect Three in the, kind of the zeitgeist to remind people about the game. So in that instance, commercially, it made sense for the artists to kind of bend and kind of give the people what they want. That goes back to Gears, man. Like you know, chainsaw game, chainsaw game, chainsaw gun. No, it was a shotgun game. You know, that's where you know when you got to the point with Gears Three, it's like, okay, let's just do a sawed-off shotgun. Let's just give them what they want, right? Yeah. That was the goal with that. One quick note, by the way, about yep. the jadedness in, in general, you know, in developers was I remember real quick back to the Oculus thing for a quick second, but mm-hmm. we'll get back to community. You know, I remember looking at that, and I remember the jaded programmers at the time. It's not high res enough. It's not going to track well enough. I don't buy it. It's not going to happen. VR didn't work last time. 
I'm sitting here going like, and I remember looking at my phone after seeing the Facebook thing, and I'm just sitting there going like. <laughs> so anyway, long story short, you know, especially you know as we get from 2006 to 2016 and beyond, you know, your community is everything, and you know, you need to listen to them to a point. But you have to be careful of the point where it's an, an echo chamber right. of the tail wagging the dog. Because you're only and, ever hearing from 1% or less of your audience, Yeah, right? well, now you have, you know, people giving their opinion on YouTube and Twitch. Um, you know, people tweeting you violently. You know, you have, you know, Instagram, you know, uh, 8 million different social channels. That's why, you know, you need a community team that can help filter that stuff. As well as, you know, look at the data, listen to what the community feels, and make the gut call and communicate your reasoning behind it. Right. That's the big thing is transparency. If you're, if you're as transparent as you can possibly be with your community and let them know your rationale for things and deliver it in the right way, uh, they'll, they'll love you. You know, I just get persnickety and curmudgeon on Twitter sometimes. Did you ever instend, intend to stay retired when you, when you walked At first, away? yes, because I was so burnt out. I was just so, I was so tired of... Gears money was enough money to walk away at age 30-something. Yeah, after the, after the Chinese company came along, yeah. Wow. Um, and so it was one of those situations where, um, again, it's Raleigh, dude. Like, you know, you don't have to be a Zuckerberg out right. there. And, um, but, you know, I basically had bought a house, and my wife and I were just chilling and, like, you know, playing Rust on our laptops. And um, eventually, like, you know, I, it took me a year and a half to get the studio going, but it, after six months, I was climbing the wall. And the, the thing that, the, one of the many anecdotes I give is, like, we'd be sitting there eating dinner and learning how to cook in a house, because I used to just live in town and go to restaurants. Yeah. It was one of those situations where we'd be like, oh, how was your day? And we'd look at each other and go, you were there all Day. <laughs> you were there when the dog pooped in the backyard. You were there when I was playing my game. You were there when we were hanging out. Like, go. It's like Chris Rock used to say, "Go get kidnapped. Have some new <laughs> happen to you." And so now, you know, for me at least personally, at the end of the day, you know, Lauren's dealing with her own online community. She's playing games. She's, you know, Twitch streaming now. She's, you know, taking care of her dogs and and whatnot. And then I'm, uh, you know, off doing my thing. And then we come back at the end of the day. How's your day? Blah, 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 blah. And like, it, you know, it gives. A couple, you know, it's important, you know, I bring her everywhere that I go, travel-wise, but it's important to, like, for people and relationships and friendships to go off and have bring stuff happen. To be it, like, right? oh, my God, I saw on social media you went to Italy. How was that? Like, that kind of stuff. And it's one of the many, many things I've learned <laughs> through the, the various relationship falling that I've done <laughs> in order to learn balance. So at one, you, you, you build up a studio. You, what comes first, the, the I need to get back to work or the... Lawbreakers. I've got an idea for the a idea. game. The idea. I was, um, I, so I alluded to this, to this in the panel. A lot of what came through and what the current game is with the gravity, uh, you know, shooting in zero G and the movement and whatnot, came out of reading uh, Leviathan Wakes, uh, which was the book series that later became the Expanse on Sci-Fi. And there's a lot of the elements of like what would happen if you were in a perfect zero G environment, and you fired a high caliber weapon. You know, it would be Sandra Bullock with the um, fire extinguisher or Wally. <laughs> That's what happens, right? And so, uh, you know, and this came from me doing Zero G many years ago, the plane that does parabolas, and the <laughs> sensation of actually experiencing micro and then zero gravity. And, like, you know, and this whole generation doesn't remember uh, Morpheus, the UT map, or Ziggurat Vertigo from Quake. And so now, if I can take the idea of variable gravity with all these characters in this new world order that's still an arena shooter, but for a new generation, and, you know, what happens if I blind fire a rocket through a zero gravity zone and propel myself and then luck out and accidentally blow up the enemy behind me? Like, those kinds of moments, that's kind of what we're gunning for now. And that's, a lot of that was kind of inspired by the, the stuff in the, that book series. So it, it's, is it a hero shooter? Is it a MOBA? Because we well, Really, none, none of us have gotten to play it. Just here's yet. the thing: is like you know, even UT had characters. Quake, uh, Quake Three had clowns and 
Right. There's always right, been characters right. in these games. The thing is, is you know, are you getting your abilities from the from the things you find in the environment, or are they built into your kind of character? And I don't want us to be lumped in with all the character-based shooters out right. there, um, because you know, MOBAs I respect, but we're not a MOBA. What we are is a first-person shooter with all sorts of movements you haven't seen in a game before, with a, a soft R type of rating. That's more of the Tarantino type version of these super cartoony-looking games that has game types and moments that are built to build tension and excitement. You know, my designer who designed the game types, we don't just do CTF, we don't just do TDM. We have this, like, mode you capture a battery, it charges when you bring it to your base. Once it gets to 100%, you have to hold it for 20 seconds, you score a point. At any given point, the enemy can steal the battery out of your base. So it's kind of like a variant on one flag CTF that ends with, it's almost always two to one, the first to two team to two wins with people screaming in the test lab at the point where our neighbors at our office hate our guts <laughs> um, and other modes like there are twists on like domination and things like that like I, I, the, the order that I gave to my designer for is like give me drama you know, learning to love American football and how it can end with just a kick yeah. or a fumble or an interception. That's the stuff that we're seeding the game with in those great animated GIFs and YouTube moments that hopefully will make it a success and, and tonally not looking like the other games. Right. As well as, you know, yielding, uh, you know, just moments and drama and, and potentially making the leap eventually, hopefully, to some sort of e-sporty type thing. But I'm not even going to try and f*** that chicken right now. Is it fair to call it? Uh, a spiritual successor to UT? I'd say, I'd say it's a uh, uh, what's going to look like a mature rated um, spiritual successor to Quake at Unreal Tournament, but with the depth and longevity and drama that is deemed necessary for 2016 and beyond. You know, you got to have your progression systems and your variables and unlocks and all that kind of stuff, right? I forgot to ask you too. I, I got to figure when you walk away from Epic and word gets out. Your phone's blowing up at that point, yeah. right? With people looking to hire you? Uh, not hire, just my industry friends I've known for 20 years going, what the f***? Right? Wait, but you're telling me people like Microsoft or EA or Sony or anybody isn't saying, Cliff, we hear you're available. We'd love to have a meeting with you I had talk the, about I had the, well, one of the, you know, you know what's always been amazing to me is Phil Spencer. Like, when the Gears IP was sold, he was the first one to call me and tell me. You know, and Phil is such a, uh, just a rock star. I have so much respect for him. He's a real gamer. He's a good guy. He's a great guy. Um, and so, you know, some people reached out, but they, I think they all knew, like, I just... It was, I wanted to like, just be left alone for a little while. Yeah. You know, and then eventually, once I had the idea gestating, then you know, and Ophir was like, hey, you want to do it? I'm just like, just, just don't call me. Like, there's a time where he'd call me from the agency, and I'd just go, ignore. Ignore. <laughs> ignore. would be like, hey, what's up? You ready to work yet? Nope. <laughs> picks up beer, picks up Kendall, sits at pool with dog. Um, and so then eventually, we did what we called the bake sale, where I had like, my little leather-bound notebook with all of the ideas of the game I wanted to do. And it was like, well, I'm being in this kind of fun, dramatic prop where you know, went to Paris and to Ubisoft, put the... the the thing down, like, I want to make another billion-dollar IP. You in? Go to EA. Even met with uh, Mark Pincus at Zynga, and he was <laughs> interesting. Um, and then, you know, uh, all, you know, I would talk to Activision, you know, I'd talk to 2K, I'd talk to, you know, all of the existing guard. And, you know, when it came to who wanted to, like, come to what terms we wanted to come to, you know, this crazy Korean company came out of nowhere and, and ponied up. And that's why, you know, next time... A company that's only ever really... They're known for MMOs. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, like Cartrider and stuff like yeah. that, right? And the, one of the big things, you know, that I've learned in life, and Jason Rubin himself taught me this... Um, this past failure of success is not an indication of future failure and success. Just because virtual reality had never worked before doesn't right. mean it won't work now. Just because um, you know no one's ever made a, a PVE free-to-play game that does well, well, it turns out that you know Warframe is that and does well. So like you know, a dinosaur game. Dinosaur games largely didn't work until Ark came along, yeah. and now everyone wants to make dinosaur game so it's like you know who's, who's going to be the first one to actually do it to make everyone copy you know uh brandon uh, beck over at riot pitched uh league to ea 
And allegedly, the story goes, the urban legend, he was laughed out of the room. Hmm. Like, that's too complex. That'll never work. After Brandon and his crew, they, they saw the success of the World of Warcraft mod. Uh, no, the, no, I'm sorry, Warcraft 3 mod of the kind of three-lane mobile. Like, let's do our own version of that. Yeah. And he, now here they are, you know, doing amazing. Yeah. Uh, so you've, you've partnered up with a company that... Because they're, they're going to leave you alone, right? They're going to let you do your thing? I mean, you know, they've got to get their ducks in a row to market the hell out of the game. Um, and you, I think tonally, once you see that marketing, it's going to be really apparent we're more the Suicide Squad type of <laughs> the first-person shooter as opposed to the uh, Avengers and Ant-Man. Yeah. And, um, but it's one of those things, you know, like, they're not telling me, like, you can't make a character with green hair because that won't sell in Croatia or some crap, like, whatever. <laughs> like, you know, they're not getting in the way of that. They're trusting that we, you know, between Ariane... Uh, Tremel, Chris Milky, we have like 5,000 collective years of game development. Like, you know, you know, fund the studio, get the out of the way, and show up and market it when the time comes, and hopefully step through your profit. So the last question I have for you, Cliff, is we've clearly established you, you will follow your gut. You uh, did very well on investments over the years. Uh, so the, my question I have is, how long do you think you'll keep making games? I got at least one or two in me. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's one of those things. Eventually, you know, you know, you're a bolder man than I am. You have a four year old. You said you said a kid, and I'm just I'm, I'm pumping the brakes on that as long as I can because, as much as I love kids and my nieces and nephews and everything, they're a lot of work. And I tell my wife, I'm like, what do we like right now? You know, video games, movies, travels, sleep, doing what you want when you want, alcohol, <laughs> nice dinners, you know, time with friends, and and when you have, from what I understand, about having a, a child, it's one of the most rewarding things you can do. But it's like I say, anything worth doing in life is work. It's it's a lot of work, man. And so, so eventually, getting, you know, if I get around to doing that, you yeah. know, that's it, depending on what happens with Bosky, it, it could go any either direction. You know, I want Lawbreakers to do amazing. You know, if that does amazing, maybe we'll explore other options in regards to games and things like that. Who knows? But, you know, you can't predict what's coming next in this industry a year or two out. You're lucky if you can do six months. Right. VR may come out and completely change the world or could, or could flop this time. No one's fully sure. So it's one of those things that uh, for me personally, you know, I mean, I'm not, ex- I'm not like, I told Ariane, I'm like, dude, I'm having too much fun. Like, you know, I love pitching a weapon or a character and then seeing a, a sketch for it two days later. Like, you know, I want to see cosplayers with this game. I want to see the tattoos. I want couples coming up to me telling me they met and fell in love online playing this game, you know, blowing each other up. Like, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. You know, money's fine and great. Be able to, you know, eat and whatnot. But, like, you know, the magic of the studio and the, the culture of the environment and, you know, trying to really not take in the gravitas of moving entire families across the country to come work in this random game idea I had, which, you know, you can't, like, get to you. Um, and, you know, just ship something. The power of, of birthing, you know, uh, your, your digital baby, you know? So at some point, you're going to Marcus Phoenix it, and it's going to be you and Lauren on the beach, walk away from it all, and then in 25 years, I'll be sitting here, I'll still be, I'll be gray and doing this, and ta- I'll be talking to J.D. Blazinski. <laughs> Um, you know, it's one of those things, uh, eventually, maybe. <laughs> Cliff Blazinski, thank you so much. The game, of course, is Lawbreakers. It's coming, you mentioned, sooner than we think, yeah. which is good news. Uh, it's coming to Steam exclusively. Yep. Yep. It'll be, uh, it is a fast-action shooter with all sorts of gravity craziness. Variable gravity, character-based, awesome weapons, uh, you know, kind of an M-rated type, Quentin Tarantino-type game. Uh, you know, we actually curse and have jibbing in the game. <gasps> and uh, it's going to be on Steam, and uh, it's not going to be free-to-play anymore. Excellent. It's got to be a gray area between free-to-play and sleazy and $60 trade-ins. So hopefully we're going to try and find that. Look forward to your solution. Cool. Cliff, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. For uh, much more from IGN Unfiltered, we do these every month, sitting down with the best and brightest in the industry. Please look them up on YouTube, IGN, iTunes, etc. And uh, we'll see you next time. 
Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, the podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. I bring you two episodes a week. Every Monday, I cover something from a wide variety of topics, covering everything from feminist faves throughout history like Audre Lorde, listener coming out stories, and other hot-button topics like toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement, as well as plenty feminist history, the good and the controversial. And then every Friday, I bring you a mini What's in the News episode to keep you up to date with everything that's going on today in the world. And with over 580 episodes available to you right now, there's plenty of good stuff to listen to. You can listen to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rage on. Bye.